Hey guys, and welcome back once again to another episode of the American Idiot Podcast with your host, the idiotic, the most honorable idiot, the American Idiot. Now, I told you I was going to try to drop some more episodes throughout the week after the one I did last night. I'm about to give you another one right now. Depending on how much I can fit into it, I might try to drop one later on, or I might just throw everything into one. But once again, I want to thank you for coming back. Uh, If you've noticed, you did not hear the uh, name, the song that was this podcast was named after. I did that because when I was looking through some stuff yesterday, I noticed that the trailer for my uh, my podcast is on Apple Music, but none of the episodes are. So when I looked through Anchor, I noticed that when I was trying to publish it, it said that because there is music in the podcast, it will only be on Spotify. And one of the things that I wanted was to get it on any podcast area available. So if that's what's keeping it from getting onto Apple podcast, because that's where I listen to all of my stuff. If that's what's keeping it, then I'm going to try to find another way to incorporate that song into the episode. So it's not going to be there right now. It's probably not going to be there anytime this week, but just know that I'm listening to it. So if you are excited about hearing that, and that is the highlight of you listening to this, don't worry, it'll be back. Just give me some time to get all the bugs worked. But so today, on the American Idiot Podcast, we are going to be talking about, if I can get to all of it, Texas opening back up and ending the mask mandate. And then we're going to be talking about Biden's border agenda. start off this portion, I need to give you some background into Texas. So, of course, when everything got shut down, of course, we got shut down. Besides, like, Walmart and all the places that needed to be open, like the fast food restaurants, uh, supermarkets. So, everything got shut down. Well, so, by about, like, May-ish, or maybe, like, may Sometime around there, it was obviously like kind of before April, basically everything had started opening back up here in Texas. Well, so then we basically get to about June. About June is where we need to focus. So this was written in the Texas Tribune on June 26, 2020 at 6 p.m. Governor Greg Abbott orders Texas bars to close again and restaurants to reduce to 50% occupancy as coronavirus spreads. The move annou- moves announced Friday morning represent Abbott's most dramatic action yet in response to a surge in cases after he allowed businesses to reopen in the state. So Governor Greg Abbott on Friday took his most drastic action, which he shouldn't have taken, yet to respond to the post-reopening coronavirus surge in Texas, shutting bars back down and scaling back restaurants' capacity to 50%. He also shut down river rafting trips, which had been blamed for a swift rising cases in Hayes County and banned outdoor gatherings of over 100 people unless local officials approve. So if all of this is basically pertaining to coronavirus, first off, why did he close down something that takes place completely outside? And two, why did he say that outdoor gatherings of X amount of people, basically 100, could not happen unless local officials approved it. If this is to combat coronavirus, you should have said that no gatherings outside could take place. Or you should have said that no matter what local authorities said, that they couldn't be open. So why would you say that if this has exa- if this is having to do with coronavirus? Why would you just say, you know, it can stay open outside or outside basically no? I mean, it does not make sense. Banned outdoor gatherings of over 100 people unless local officials approve. Was this virus, is this virus so uh, intelligent that it can actually count? Oh, you know, there's 99 people. Ooh, can't get them. Oh, we got 100. I got, I got, I got people right here. And I mean, is it so smart that it can go, oh, you know, local officials approve that. You know, I can't get them. 
that that's my thinking on that, but let's go on. He said, at this time, it is clear that the rise in cases is largely driven by certain types of activities, including Texans congregating in bars. So it's smart enough to notice bars, but completely blind to Walmart, completely blind to HEB, completely blind to fast food restaurants. The actions in this executive order are essential to our mission to swiftly contain the virus and protect public health. And you know, I completely understand that it is to protect public health. I understand that to this day. I completely understand that, but I still cannot grasp why he would say that unless local officials approved, you could not have outside gatherings of over 100 people. I couldn't understand why he shut down an outside river raft when, even after he did the mask mandate, he'd said if you were outside and you can maintain... Six feet of social distance, you don't have to wear a mask. And he said, if you can actually, when you look at his actual executive order, his mask mandate order, he said exactly, a mask must be worn covering the face, the nose, and the mouth in public, except if you can maintain six feet of social distance, or if you are outside and can maintain six feet, or if you are actively working out or doing uh, doing uh, basically physical activities and can maintain social distance. This doesn't make sense because this is basically this is about the same time that he put out that executive order for the mask mandate. As for outdoor gatherings, Abbott's decision Friday represents his second adjustment in that category this week. Abbott on Tuesday gave local governments the choice to place restrictions on outdoor, outdoor gatherings of over 100 people after previously setting the threshold at over 500 people. Now outdoor gatherings are, of over 100 people are prohibited unless local officials explicitly approve of them. State officials have noted that case numbers in Texas began to increase around Memorial Day weekend and have expressed worry about big public gatherings for 4th of July. Abbott's actions Friday were his first significant move to reverse the reopening process that he has led since late April. He said Monday that shutting down the state again is a last resort, but the situation has been worsening quickly. Abbott put Texas under what was effectively a stay-at-home order for most of April, shutting down all but businesses considered essential by the state. After letting that ex that order expire at the end of April, he moved forward with a phased reopening of the state that was one of the earliest and quickest in the country. By early June, Abbott had permitted almost all businesses to open at least 50% capacity. But cases have climbed rapidly in recent weeks. On Thursday, Texas saw another record number of new cases, 5,996, as well as hospitalizations, 4,739. The hospitalization number set a record for the 14th straight day. During the increase, Abbott has cited Texas' large hospital capacity and the availability of respirators. But many hospitals in Texas cities have reported crowded intensive care units in recent days. And some cities have begun reviving plans to treat patients at convention centers and stadiums. So that's all well and good. That is all wonderful. That is all great. I under stand that they started going up but i have two questions for governor abbott you know i've liked governor abbott i have supported him and everything he did but let me ask him this how come how come south dakota with governor christy Nome, had no mask mandate mandate did not shut down their economy and they have one of the lowest cases in the states I'm not going to bring up Florida because I don't know what was going on in Florida at this time, but still, nonetheless, South Dakota did not have a mask mandate, did not shut down their economy. Now, of course, you had the big people like Walmart that they basically said masks were expected to be worn and all of their uh, all of their stores completely understand that with Walmart. I see it. I disagree with it wholeheartedly. Because to me, Walmart does not have more power than the local government or the state authority. If South Dakota said no mask mandate, then that those stores should have basically said, no, we are not bigger than the state authority. 
we're not going to put out, we're not going to sit here and do a mask mandate. But nonetheless, how come they had a lower case count than Texas? Well, James, Texas is obviously much bigger than South Dakota. You know, I'll give you that. But I mean, ever since Florida opened up, which Florida is about, it's not the same size as Texas, but it's one of the next bigger states. Their cases have been on the low end ever since they opened back up. And I think as far as I know that they do not have a mask mandate and they're still low. Abbott specifically cited the positivity rate in explaining his actions Friday. As I said from the start, if the positivity rate rose above 10%, the state of Texas would take further actions to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. <coughs> Excuse me. And later Friday, Abbott expressed regret for how he handled the reopening of bars in the first place. If I could go back and redo anything, it probably would have been to slow the opening, slow down the opening of bars. Now seeing in the aftermath of how quickly the coronavirus spread in the bar setting. Okay, where's the evidence on this? How did you know that it was spreading so rapidly through bars? How do you know that Walmart was not a super spreader? How do you know that HEB was not a super spreader? How do you know that McDonald's and all the fast food restaurants that were open were not super spreaders? But so I don't want to get bogged down in this because now that we're opening... Now that we're opening back up, as of tomorrow, he he said last Tuesday, a week ago, he'd said that he would open up everything, and everything would be open 100%. There's no mask mandate effective March 10th. Well, the day after that, let me go find my next uh, site, the next thing I wanted to talk about. We have this. A day after Governor Greg Abbott announced plans to fully reopen businesses and end the state's mask mandate, small business owners across Texas found themselves struggling to decide what to do next. This is again from the Texas Tribune. As small business owners and managers across Texas went to work Wednesday morning, they faced yet another 2021 headache. Deal with losing business from customers who don't want to wear face masks during the pandemic, or from patrons who will only frequent places that require them. Now, let me say this right here. Let me stop right there. I worked at Walmart, or I worked at McDonald's. I worked at McDonald's. I worked in McDonald's. I was working there during all of this started. I quit. My last day was February 21st. So we still had the mask mandate in place. And you know what I saw the entire time that I was there? There were people that were in there that were not wearing masks, that were with people that were wearing masks. We had people that would come in for DoorDash that would not wear a mask. We had a guy get into a yelling argument with another gentleman, cussing him out in our lobby because the guy had said, shouldn't he be wearing a mask? And the man working for DoorDash said that DoorDash leaves it up to them. So are they really going to have to worry about losing patrons that do not want to wear a mask or that do want to wear a mask. From that, from what I saw there, no, McDonald's won't. Other places might might not. But let's get on. The dilemma was abruptly th thrust upon them after Governor Greg Abbott announced yesterday afternoon that the state will lift its mask mandate and allow all businesses to operate at 100% capacity. Now look at this. That the state will lift its mask mandate and allow all businesses to operate at 100% capacity starting March 10th. Focus in on that word, allow. Mask mandate and allow all businesses. That allow says something right there. Throughout the other stuff that was seen, basically he had said that they may. That word may, does that, that they may open up to 100% capacity? Does that say definition? That they have to open to 100% capacity? No. Basically, as has been going on, he is going to leave it up to these places if they stay open, if they leave their things in place or not. So, for example, 
everything's been basically at a certain capacity. Like my Walmart, my store for Walmart, we can only have 955 people in store. That's our total for right now. However, we never hit that many people. We normally have more than 800 people that we could put get in there. So we're basically already open back up at 100%. So I can already guarantee you this. My Walmart, all the Walmarts, will basically go back to being open at 100% capacity because most all of them for this city are already at that. But are they going to get rid of the mask mandate? No, most likely not because they're allowed to do it. They're allowed to stay open. And we're going to get further into this when I bring up another thing here in a minute. So some businesses barely had an opportunity to reopen after last month's deadly winter storm and power outage crisis before hearing about this massive change to the state's COVID-19 safety protocols. So Jessica Johnson, the general manager of the Sichuan House in San Antonio, said, I do feel that we'll probably lose guests based on whatever decision we do make, but I guess that's just part of the environment that we are in now. It's either you wear masks and piss a couple people off, or you don't wear masks and you piss a couple people off. So it's basically a lose-lose. At least one business owner, Macy Moore of Hop Fusion Ale Works in Fort Worth, said Wednesday on CNN that he had not slept since Abbott's announcement because he's so worried about the health and safety of his staff. Again. Because now that this is today, I will add in Florida. Florida has been open for however long. South Dakota has been open for however long. And they have some of the lowest, some of the lowest cases. So why would you be worried about your staff? And why would you be worried about your customers? If we already have low cases. And... South Dakota, who never had one, and Florida, who is known for having opened up 100%, have the lowest amount of cases. Even the CDC based recently and said that locking down and wearing a mask had not been as effective as they thought it would be. So what is the point of being worried for your people's safety if making them wear a mask makes them just as uh, risk make, gives them just as much risk as not having it. Others like Ann Ning of Bakery Lorraine in San Antonio have decided to keep mass requirements in place for staff and customers regardless of what Abbott and the state government say. And then she went on to say, by repealing the mandate, the government is putting everyone at risk, and food service workers are sadly at the front lines in facing potential hostility from folks who will refuse to respect our mask policy. Walmart's already been ha dealing with that. That is exactly why Walmart stopped trying to force people to wear masks, because people were getting attacked because of it. There was a viral video from Bath and Body Works the other day. Where a woman was not wearing a mask and she got physically assaulted because she wasn't wearing a mask. You've already been dealing with that. So why are you making a big deal about it now? Why? It's been happening. It would continue to happen no matter what Greg Abbott did. Meanwhile, Rep. Representative Dustin Burroughs, a Republican from Lubbock, filed legislation last week that would prevent any business entities from being held liable for exposing people to pandemic illness. That shouldn't even have to happen. That provision is House Bill 3, is one of Abbott's top priorities for this year's legislative session. The governor was joined by Burroughs in Lubbock on Tuesday when announcing plans to rescind many coronavirus restrictions against the advice of federal and local health officials. Health experts are still urging Texans to keep wearing masks as new and more contagious variants of the virus emerge. Hospitalizations continue to decrease after January record highs, but the state is also still averaging more than 200 deaths a day.
Hey, is that 200 deaths from COVID-19? Is that 200 deaths that are called COVID-19 because the person tested positive but could have died from anything else? Christina ha, Christine ha, a partner and co-executive chef at Zin Chow in Houston, sent out a notice to her whole staff Wednesday afternoon that the restaurant would continue requiring masks and operating at a reduced capacity. She expressed concerns about enforcing those policies, though, because local agencies and law enforcement no longer have to support her restaurant's safety requirements. This leaves it up to my team to enforce these policies, and they are in the business of hospitality, not policing. Paul said. Now, that's the point I want to get at. That's the point that I want to hit on right there. Because back when Abbott closed the bars and the salons, guess what happened? People were arrested and thrown in jail because they wanted to stay open. I'm going to go to the next one, but this is what I want to hit on. Why? Why? If the government says to open and have no mask, do you think that you have the authority to keep staying closed to a certain amount and to enforce your people or your uh, customers to wear a mask? You are not and have not more authority than the local government. Just because Biden is for it does not mean that you can do it. The states created the federal government. The state government is the government. Now, why am I getting so agitated about this? Let me bring let me bring it up. Let me bring you to this. This is why I'm getting that upset. Dallas hair salon owner jailed for week for defying lockdown. Shelly Luther, owner of Salon a la Mode in Dallas, appeared in court on Tuesday after defying a cease and desist letter and a restraining order. The judge said she could avoid jail if she apologized for being selfish. Shut the salon and paid a fine. Okay. So, the government said to close. She didn't close, and she's selfish. Does that seem pretty 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 straightforward? Yes and no. Why is she selfish for keeping her business open, which is her way of making money? Let's let's go on. But Luther refused, saying feeding my kids is not selfish. It is her job as the mother, her and her husband's, if there's a husband, if there's a boyfriend or whatever, it is her job to feed her kids. Is she being selfish by keeping her ability to feed them open. No. She's doing her God-given duty. And as it says in Acts 5.29, we ought to obey God rather than man. Governor Greg Abbott, man. God, God. Obey God rather than Greg Abbott. Simple enough. They make sure to put in this, though. She would only have needed to close the salon until Friday because the state's plans to allow them to reopen then. So they're basically sitting here, oh, you know, she didn't have she wouldn't have had to stay closed long. That would have still been money she didn't make that she would have needed to feed her kids. And had it not been for her, they might have not opened. Luther was fined seven thousand dollars and warned that she would be fined a further five hundred dollars a day from now until Friday if the businesses continue to remain open. Now, look at this. Listen to this. Judge Eric Moye told Luther, the rule of law governs us. People cannot take it upon themselves to determine what they will and will not do. So, and you know, this might happen if people try to stay closed. I don't think it will. We'll find out. But a judge said... So this judge sat here and told Luther, the rule of law governs us. People cannot take it upon themselves to determine what they will and will not do. So, it's okay for the government to tell you to shut down and not make money. And to basically, in the end, 
hurt your household. And you have to listen. But, as I was reading in the other area, that what? N, Ing, however you say it? And Ing of Bakery Lorraine in San Antonio has decided to keep mass requirements in place for staff and customers regardless of what Abbott and the government say. Christine Ha, for uh, a chef at Zin Chow in Houston, sent out a notice to her whole staff Wednesday afternoon that the restaurant would continue requiring masks and operating at a reduced capacity. So, if the government says you have to close, you've got to close. But then the same thing doesn't matter if they say you've got to open to 100% and no mask mandate. I don't see how that's fair. And I'll tell you why I get so upset about this. This is why I get so upset about this. I, back in December, I basically worked as a cashier inside of Walmart for four hours. For four hours, I wore my mask because I had to. I'm in, basically, I'm an employee. Basically, I can get, I was already once threatened with getting pulled in and getting uh, written up for not wearing my mask outside. So I had to wear my mask inside. In those four hours, you know what happened? I started getting a really bad headache, started having a hard time breathing. By the time I got off of that shift, I felt like utter crap. That Thursday night, I went to the local hospital, got tested for flu and coronavirus, came back positive for coronavirus. And, you're, and you might be sitting there, oh, okay, well, I mean, you got coronavirus. I mean, you weren't wearing your mask outside. True. The entire time I'd been outside, I had not been wearing my mask. But what was the difference between that and wearing my mask inside for four hours? Me wearing my mask is what caused my symptoms to come out in me. Up until then, I might have had coronavirus in my system, but I did not have symptoms. And people that are not, that are asymptomatic, do not pass on the virus. So, me wearing a mask inside did not save me from coronavirus. It gave me coronavirus. It caused me to get symptoms and have to deal with being out of work. Luckily, both of my jobs had uh, coronavirus relief so I could get paid. But still, why is it fair that a lady is thrown in jail because she didn't want to close so she, support, so she could support her family, but now that we're talking about opening it up, people are sitting here saying, oh, you know, although the government who makes the rule of law and we are to abide by said that I have to open to 100% and I don't have to enforce the mask mandate. I'm still going to keep myself closed at X amount and I'm still going to enforce the mask. Are these people going to be fined? Are they going to be thrown, uh, thrown in jail? Like I said, we'll find out. But I think it's kind of hypocritical that a lady was thrown in jail, that other people were thrown in jail, and that they were forced to shut their businesses. But now... People are going to be able to keep what they want because of their liberty, which I have no problem with, and they're not going to get fined, and they're not going to get sued. If they don't have to abide by the rule of law, then when we were told to close, when we were told that we had to mask, we should have had the exact same liberty to not mask and to not close down and to be open at 100% if we so well choose or chose because it's in the past tense. We should not have had to sit here and hurt our families, 
hurt ourselves, get used to the new normal, as they want to call it, and wear a mask and all this other stuff. If they're not going to get in trouble for not abiding by the law, we shouldn't have gotten in trouble for not abiding by the law. If we got in trouble for not abiding by the law, they should get in trouble for not abiding by the law. It all makes sense. Now, I'm all for liberty. I'm all for if you want to wear your mask as a private citizen, that is your right. But if you are an owner of a company, you should not be told that you have to close and get in trouble for it and then be told that you can open and other people aren't going to get in trouble. That's not liberty. That's hypocrisy. If you're an owner and you want to open, you should have been able to op stay open back then. The mask mandate, all the other mandates that ruined the economy should not have been put in place because we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's all I've got to say about Texas and the mask mandate for now. So we're going to go from talking about Texas and the mask mandate, and we're going to jump from talking about all of Texas to talking about the southern border, and particularly about Biden's border agenda and what it's already caused. But to understand all of this, I'm going to bring up some stuff that took place basically back under the Obama era and even uh, as far back as in 2019. So we're going to be talking about the border we're going to be talking about uh, Biden's administration, basically his predecessor and his president, his former president. So we're going to be talking about Obama, Trump, and Biden in this. Because the problem is, is if you can and you can go and listen to Stephen Crowder. You can go and listen to stuff. Uh, whoever is handling all of this for uh, for Biden will not call what is going on on the border a crisis. He calls it a challenge. But even Jay Johnson, who was handling all of this under Obama, said that a thousand illegal crossings a day was a crisis. And we'll get into that. We will get into that and talk about if it actually is a crisis and compare it to what's going on right now with the illegal crossings under Biden. So first off, I want to hit you with something from August 6th, 2014. This is from Judicial Watch. This is, this is under the Obama era. DOJ report, nearly half of federal crimes near Mexican border. So let me state that again. This is a Department of Justice report. Nearly half of fed crimes near Mexican border. And it starts off. Crime is so high along the Mexican border that nearly half of all the criminal cases filed by federal prosecutors in the United States last fiscal year were contracted in a handful of districts located in that region, according to the U.S. government's figures. So this is not even talking about in 2014. This is it said it was it talked about the fiscal last fiscal year. So that's talking about 2013. So it's talking about the last fiscal so it's talking about fiscal year 2014 which would have been basically the actual year 2014. So that's what we're talking about, okay? This is what we need to understand. So, crime is high along the Mexican border and nearly half of all criminal cases filed by federal prosecutors in the United States in the fiscal year of 2014, that being 2013, were concentrated in a handful of districts located in that region. It's not as if this is new. So in 2014, the, man, the uh, person who wrote this for Judicial Watch, they said, that's not new. But to see it spelled out in a government report with a detailed breakdown is truly alarming. The statistics illustrate that the Mexican border region is a cesspool of crime. That's costing American taxpayers a chunk of change, not to mention loads of grief. There are 94 federal court districts in this country, and the five located near the southern border see a large portion of criminal cases, according to the Justice Department's annual report on criminal prosecutions. 
the five federal districts also have the biggest numbers of defendants actually convicted of federal crimes. Now listen to this. Of the 61,529 criminal cases initiated by federal prosecutors last fiscal year, so in 2013, more than 40% or 24,746 were filed in courts in court districts neighboring the Mexican border. So all of the federal criminal cases for the fiscal year uh, or for in 2013 was 61,529. 24,746 of those or 40% were filed in court, court districts neighboring the Mexican border. This includes Arizona, New Mexico, Southern California, Western Texas, and Southern Texas. The two Texas districts each had more than double the convictions of all four federal court districts in the state of New York combined. So, for just the Western Texas district and the Southern Texas districts, they each had more than double the convictions of all four federal court districts in the state of New York combined. That's a crisis. <coughs> That's a crisis. And it had gone back, it had stepped away from being a crisis, but we're going to see that it comes back to being a crisis. The Western Texas district had the nation's heaviest crime flow with 6,341 6, cases filed by the feds. In southern Texas, 6,130 cases were filed, 4,848 in southern California, and 3,889 in New Mexico, and 3,538 in Arizona. Not surprisingly, Judicial Watch says, most of the offenses were immigration-related. In fact, 38.6% of all federal cases, 23,744, filed last year, 2013, involved immigration. The D Department of Justice report confirms nearly 22%, 13,383, were drug-related. 19.7%, 12,123, were violent crimes. And 10.2%, 6,300, involved white-collar offenses that include a full range of frauds committed by business and government professionals. This is hardly earth-shattering news, in fact. The nation's southern border region has for years been known for its high crime rate compared to the rest of the country. This is exactly why Trump wanted to build the wall. To stop this from happening. To stop this from happening. However, the problem has escalated at an alarming rate in the last few years. Last spring, Judicial Watch reported that violence in the region has gotten so out of control that both Mexican and American journalists have largely stopped reporting it out of fear that drug cartels will retaliate against them and their families. Around the same time, a small town paper in Reynosa, the twin border city of McAllen in South Texas, bravely ran a story describing the fear and panic that filled the streets, a three-hour firefight between rival drug cartels. This is what is going to come across the border with Biden opening it up. Yeah, no, this is not what all is going to come across, but this is happening at the border. If you want to hear about something crazy, go listen to the podcast called Forgotten, The Women of Juarez. Since the 90s, there has been women that will work in Juarez because it is where all of the American factories go in Mexico. They will all go there and work. And there have been tons of women that have gone missing. There were mass graves found in like 90, in 2000, in 2011. This is what's going on across the border in Mexico. This is what will overflow into our southern border, into Texas. If we open the border, 
basically it's already open. If we leave the border open, and if we were just letting people come in, catching them, taking their name, and letting them go. This is what's going to come. Now, yeah, there will be those people that they're coming in for a better life. There will be those that they're literally trying to flee to a better country. But a better portion of what will come will be the drug cartels. Trafficking children. Trafficking drugs. They already basically are in El Paso. There are people in the states that are covering for the cartels that are working with them. And La Linea, which is basically the bad police that work with the cartel in Mexico that are strong enough to literally get rid of a director in El Paso for the FBI. We already have such a strong connection with the cartels and what's happening that they have that much power. That there was a director in El Paso for the FBI that he got basically fired or he got removed because the people that have the uh, connections in America for the cartel wanted him gone. That will overflow into the states. Years earlier, Judicial Watch reported that federal agents guarding the U.S.-Mexico border had been ordered to stay away from the most crime-infested stretches because they're too dangerous and patrolling them could result in an international incident of cross-border shooting. This shocking information come from a, came from a law enforcement official in an Arizona county located along the Mexican border. The official, Cochise County Sheriff Larry Dever, has testified before on Congress, to Congress, on many occasions about the steady increase in border crime. Violence related to drug and human smuggling has risen sharply. And this is in 2013 has risen sharply in the last decade. The sheriff told Congress a few years ago a local law enforcement agencies like his are severely undermanned to handle the crisis. The Obama administration has dealt with this crisis by pretending it doesn't exist. The president's first Homeland Security Secretary, former Arizona Governor Janet Napolitano, spent a great, great deal of her tenure proclaiming that the Mexican border is as secure as it ever has been. In the meantime, the Justice Department's National Drug Intelligence Center, shut down by the Obama administration in 2012, confirmed that Mexican drug cartels do in fact control access to the U.S., Mexico border and the smuggling routes across it. In one of its last reports before getting axed, the National Drug Intelligence Center concluded that the unprecedented levels of violence in Mexico will continue for years. Inevitably, the crimes have spread north because cartels, including the Sinaloa, Los Zetas, and Juarez, have joined forces with U.S. street gangs that operate in more than 1,000 cities throughout the country. And that's talking about in a thousand cities in the States, not in Mexico. This sort of collaboration between U.S. gangs and Mexican-based criminal organizations will continue to increase, facilitating wholesale drug trafficking into and within the United States. The three-year-old report said, it seems that nothing has changed. This is why Biden, this is why Trump wanted to build the wall. And you might be saying, okay, that's great and all. But did the border work? Did it work? Let me read you something else. This is from May March 4th, 2021. Number of illegal border crossings now six times what Obama team considered crisis. Key takeaways. There is a catastrophic crisis that could add another quarter of a million to the population of illegal aliens in this country in less than a year. According to one report, human traffickers are so overwhelmed with business, they are using wristbands to keep track of their clients. Encouraging illegal immigration fuels a number of dangers that put the lives of migrants at risk. Okay. So, that hasn't changed, and this is from Heritage.org. 
This was written by James J. Carafano. I'm going to pull up another one quickly. This is from Bureau of Justice Statistics, BJS.gov, August 22nd, 2019. So this is Trump. This is the first BJS report that comprehensively describes the citizenship of suspects arrested unprosecuted for federal crimes or federal offenses. The report highlights trends from 98 through 2018 providing statistics on immigration and non-immigration offenses, U.S.-Mexico border and non-U.S.-Mexico border districts and county of citizenship. The findings are based on data collected by BJS, Federal Justice Justice Statistic Programs, which receives administrative data from six federal justice agencies, the U.S. Marshals Service, Drug Enforcement Administration, Executive Office for U.S. Attorneys, Administration Office of the U.S. Courts, U.S. Sentencing Commission, and Federal Bureau of Prisons. The FJSP links and standardizes this information, enabling the production of statistics not available elsewhere. Highlights. Based on fiscal year in 98, 63% of all federal arrests were of U.S. citizens. So, in 1998, 63% of all federal arrests were of U.S. citizens. Compare that to the 40% in 2014 that were all on the border. 2018, 64% of all federal arrests were of non-U.S. citizens. So, 2014, 40% of all of the federal cases were on the border. 2018, 64% of all federal arrests were of non-U.S. citizens. Non-U.S. citizens who make up 7% of the U.S. population per the U.S. Census Bureau for 2017 accounted for 15% of all federal arrests and 15% of prosecutions in U.S. District Court for non-immigration crimes in 2018. So non-U.S. citizens make up 7% of the U.S. population. They accounted for 15% of all federal arrests and 15% of all prosecutions in U.S. district courts for non-immigration crimes in 2018. So you have, in 2017, 7% of our population is US, non-U.S. citizens. But they made up 15% of all federal arrests and 15% of prosecutions in the U.S. district court for non-immigration crimes. The portion of total federal arrests that took place in the five judicial districts along the U.S.-Mexico border almost doubled from 1998, where it was only 33%. To 2018, where it was 65%. So let's, let's look at this one again. So, Judicial Watch... So in, 20, in 2013, of the 61,529 criminal cases initiated by federal prosecutors last fiscal year, 2013, more than 40%. So they just say more than 40%. So 24,746 were filed in court districts neighboring the Mexican border. So in 1998, it was 33%. So from basically 98 to 2013, it didn't jump up that much. But what did we have Basically from 2000. So what, who did we have in the White House from 2000 to 2008? For most of that time, from 98 to 2013. From 2000 to 2008, we had a Republican. And then 20, 2008 to 2013, there was Obama, a Biden, so Democrats. So, I mean, and I can't sit here and say that it, that it was because of Bush that everything stayed so low or that everything wasn't as bad in 2014, 2013, 2014. But I think it's safe to say that because 2013 was in the start of 
Obama's second term, when he started pushing everything, when he started pushing for homosexuality, when he started pushing for open borders, when he started truly showing his socialist agenda, that it was most likely then why everything happened. So let's go back. Let's go back to what I had been talking about for a moment. So as I had been talking about, from Heritage.org, number of illegal boarding crossings, now six times what Obama team considered crisis. And the picture that they show for this, you see tons of people that look to be Hispanic, and they're all wearing shirts that have the Biden symbol from his campaign that says, please let us in. And you can see most everyone for at least three to four rows back are wearing that Biden, please let us in. So the key takeaways from this, there's a catastrophic crisis that could add another quarter of a million to the population of illegal aliens in this country in less than a year. Why would that be so important to the Democrats and to Biden? What happened in 2020? Trump had the overwhelming majority of votes, so overwhelming that the Dominion voting systems basically had to shut themselves off to give themselves time to balance everything out in favor of Biden. So they could not hide the fraud as well. But if you have an extra quarter of a million people that you think are going to vote Democrat, that's going to far outweigh anything like that. Also, take into effect H.R. 1. Basically pushing for uh, nationwide uh, vote by mail, saying that uh, you can ballot harvest, uh, basically making it possible for Democrats to do all of their uh, stuff that they do during uh, their fraud that they do during elections and making it legal. Because they know if that's not there, they would never have a chance in winning. They would have never had a chance to win in 2020. According to one report, human traffickers are so overwhelmed with business, they are using wristbands to keep track of their clients. Encouraging illegal immigration fuels a number of dangers that put the lives of migrants at risk. And these are migrants that are migrating back and forth with the green card, or they're doing as they're supposed to, not illegally coming across the border to stay here. According to former officials in the Obama administration, the standard for a border crisis was 1,000 attempted crossings a day. When the Trump administration ended, the U.S. was deporting more people than were illegally coming into the country. In less than a month under Biden, the number of people illegally coming into the country is more than 6,000 per day. That's six, six times the crisis level as set by the Obama team. According to a source with knowledge of what's happening at our southern border, the Border Patrol in one day encountered 4,700 people trying to illegally enter the U.S. About another 900 were observed but not detained. There are so many people crossing that our Border Patrol cannot detain them all. There are some that they see them crossing, and there's not the manpower to be able to pull them in to properly catch and release, which that's what Obama, that's what Obama was all about. Catch them, take their information, release them into the country. Nine hundred were observed but not detained. In addition, another four hundred were detained and sent back. The vol this volume is straining resources at the border. And it is not just the numbers. This is fueling a public health crisis. Fifteen, uh, one source in the Department of Homeland Security estimates 15 to 25% of people who illegally cross the border are COVID-19 positive. According to a recent press report, asylum seekers, which the president has also let in record numbers, let in in record numbers, are testing positive for COVID-19 after being released by the Border Patrol. The numbers are fueling a public safety crisis. The cash that flows into the pockets of cartels and transitional gangs 
and turns fuels their opioid business, which poisons and kills our neighbors and children, as well as many other nefarious activities that makes our communities less safe. If these dramatic consequences, which, uh, let me go back, this is flood is feeding a humanitarian crisis. Encouraging illegal immigration fuels a number of dangers that put the lives of migrants at risk. A dramatic example of that just happened in California where over a dozen illegal immigrants were killed in a traffic accident, having been unsafely packed in a van driven by smugglers. If these dramatic consequences don't add up to a crisis, then the Titanic is still just running late. Yet the Secretary of Homeland Security has said there is no crisis. On camera, when asked by a reporter, the President of the United States said there is no crisis. In fact, in one week, the administration said there is no crisis, reportedly drafted a supplemental appropriation request to deal with the crisis, and blamed the crisis on former President Donald Trump. You know how many illegal crossings there were under Trump? 842 a day. All of this started once Biden hit office. The president should be honest with the American people. There is a crisis. The crisis was caused by a draft of open border policies rapidly implemented by this administration, such as stopping construction on the border wall and promoting amnesty for illegal aliens. What was one of the things that Trump, that Biden did by executive order? Halted work on the border wall? What if he had said that he would give amnesty to any illegal alien that was inside the states as of January 1st, I believe it was? So no, this is not Trump's fault. Trump is the one that wanted to build the wall. Trump is the one that had done everything that he could to give our border patrol the support that they needed to handle what was coming. This is all Biden. Biden is the one that stopped the construction of the border wall. And the funny thing about that is that that was only going to be $5 billion. We didn't have the money for that $500 billion, or that $5 billion for the border wall. But then what did they do when they gave us $600? They were sending over, what, $500 billion to other uh, other countries? which in effect are advertisements to attract more illegal immigration. Why would they want to attract more illegal immigration? To fuel them in their bid to become a make this a one-party country. Think of it. Open borders. Pass H.R. 1. Uh, vote by mail in all states. Uh, no excuse, uh, vote by mail. Anyone that is on government, uh, that is on uh, government rolls for support, automatically enrolled. States cannot uh, get rid of people that have moved outside of their state or that are no longer in a certain area. And then a quarter million more illegal aliens that would then be able to sign up for things that would make them able to vote. It all has to do with voting. The president should immediately put a stop to implementing initiatives that proactively attract illegal immigration. So that is all from the Heritage.org, uh, the Heritage Foundation. That was March 4th, 2021. good news, and I'm happy to say that, yeah, we might be upset about the Supreme Court and how they have been lackluster on the uh, election, but listen to this. This is from onenewsnow.com. Immigration laws must be enforced. Rules SCOTUS. This is Monday, March 8th. This is yesterday. An Immigration Enforcement Advisory 
organization is praising a Supreme Court ruling that will make it harder for illegal aliens who have been convicted of a crime to avoid deportation. So it doesn't shut the border down, but it basically means if they come in and they do something and they get caught and they have a, a violent uh, history, they are going to be deported. Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote the opinion for a 5-3 conservative majority that ruled against an illegal alien from Mexico who has lived in the U.S. for 25 years. Clemente Avalino Perita has been charged in Nebraska with using a fraudulent Social Security card to get a job and was convicted under a state law against criminal impersonation. Before this ruling, illegal aliens with criminal convictions who were facing deportation could ask the Attorney General to allow them to remain in the country if the conviction was not for a serious crime. So if they were illegal, if they were here illegally, and they were facing deportation, they could ask the Attorney General to allow them to remain, going against our laws, just so long as the conviction was not for a serious crime. And if the person had lived in America at least 10 years among other criteria. But in this case, Gorsuch wrote that Parida failed to prove that he was not convicted of a serious crime. Amen, Gorsuch. Ira Melman, a spokesman for the Federation for American Immigration Reform, FAIR for short, like that name, says that will make it all the more difficult for the Biden administration to keep the president's promise of suspending all deportations. Essentially, what the court said is that you cannot simply decide to make an across-the-border board decision not to enforce any of the nation's immigration laws, Melman summarizes. Whether the president in the Oval Office likes them or not, he or she is obligated to carry them out. And Melman believes this ruling will discourage future legal challenges to immigration statutes that are already on the books. The administration obviously is going to push the envelope as far as it can. The FAIR spokesman expects, we saw during the Trump administration, the advocates for illegal aliens were at the courthouse door the moment that administration did anything that they didn't like. So turnabout is fair play. In this case, the law is on the side of those who oppose any effort to take a wrecking ball to our immigration policy enforcement. Now, this is the one thing that originally I didn't agree with, but it makes sense. Justice Amy Coney Barrett did not take part in the case because she had not yet joined the court when the case was argued in October. And you might be sitting here and you might be upset. Well, she's here now. Why didn't she, why didn't she take part in it? Well, think back to her uh, confirmation hearing. While she was constantly getting hit and attacked with, uh, what about ACA? What about this? What about that? What, what would you vote on this? What did she constantly say? Amy Coney Barrett constantly said that she would have to hear the case before she could make a decision on it, or before she would make a decision on it. So this falls in line with her character, is that she did not take part in the case because she had not yet joined the court when the case was argued in October. So, had she gone the other way if she had heard it? Maybe. I don't think she would have because Trump uh, thumbed her for her being a Texas in a, basically a Texas. Meaning that when she looked at the law, when she looked at the Constitution, what it said is what it meant. What it said back then is what it means now. So that is everything that I have on Biden and his border. Let me look at my notes real quick. So something else that I'll probably deal with on another episode is Biden and his campaign promises. And I have something that I'll have to do with that as well.
because I think right now, basically, Texas mask mandate and the Texas border, I mean, I don't even know how long this episode has been going for, or this, this one. This section has been about 16 minutes. The one before it has been 17 minutes. I've been having some issues with my phone, so if it sounds broken up or if I, I'm saying one thing and then it goes blank and I'm saying something else that doesn't make sense, just call and let me know. I'll try to listen to it so I can fix it. But I've basically been doing segments of uh, each uh, thing that I was doing. I'm going to go ahead and cut it here for this episode. Again, thank you so, so much for listening. Thank you for giving me your time. I hope you come back and listen. I'm hoping to have another episode maybe put put together on Friday or Saturday. But thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy it. Get back to me with... Anything that you have to say, get back to me with any input you have, and you guys have a great night.